we would be honored if you would join. All right, everyone, welcome to the final episode. Not the final episode of Dungeon Crawlers, but the final episode to this all-out devastating brawl of which is better, the theatrical release that was completed by Josh Whedon or the Snyderverse cut of Justice League. We've talked to you about The Man is Steel. We've talked to you about Batman versus Superman Ultimate Edition. All three of us have seen those films. We talked about that in the last episode and we talked so much we ran out of time. So now we have part three. And this is the episode where we will discuss Justice League. The, Sorry guys, I couldn't help myself. It, what we didn't like about it, what we really didn't like about it, and what should just be thrown in the garbage. Yeah, wow. only negative things. This is a show that is just an endless pit 20, of dark abyss. 25% positive. 25% positive, all percent nothingness. No, just kidding. Wow. Just, just kidding. Uh, however, this is going to be awesome. This is, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed, I didn't like the week wait, but I've really enjoyed the discussion we've had. You know, we talked Truth. early on uh, about the films without Alton seeing any of the films and Krebs only seeing a few of them, me seeing all of them. Then we came back after everyone watched everything and then we've talked about uh, the movies leading up to it, uh, what we felt could have been improved on and what things like that. Uh, funny enough, there are a few people that are now uh, wanting to have uh, the Suicide Squad get a, a Zack Snyder uh, cut version of it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see mm. what happens. It can only go up from where it's at. It really can. It can only go up. <laughs> I don't know if I can stand to do another Saturday marathon of DC <laughs> films, guys. Uh, luckily, it'll only be two films. The original Suicide Squad and the new one. So you wouldn't have to have anything leading up to that. But, but uh, what about the other new Suicide Squad that's coming out? That's by James Gunn. So I think we're safe there. Oh, okay. And it has John Cena and Idris Elba. So And Nathan Fillion. And Nathan Fillion. A whole bunch of other amazing. So it's guys. already 687% better. And I think that's empirical. The only minus I would give to that whole film is Margot Robbie as Harley. See, now you and I differ on that one. I think she's a fantastic Harley. So, well, okay. But we can talk about I, that another time if you want. I enjoyed her as Harley until I watched Birds of Prey movie. And then, ugh. Which is funny because I've th this will be in a future episode, so we're teasing it. But um, I've only seen, I don't know, the first third or so, maybe first half of Birds of Prey. Um, and as as a Harley Quinn character, I still really like her, but I have to finish the movie. I have to finish the movie. Yeah, I that really, <laughs> that movie really turned me off. I was on the fence before, but all right, let's get on track. Let's talk about Justice League, and we will start with the theatrical release because that's the yes. one that came out first. Yes, that makes sense to talk about that one. Now I think no, it's I... important. I think it's important that we also cover how the movie was made just briefly because there's an important factor there. Yeah. And keep in mind, there will be spoilers throughout this episode. If you have somehow made it to part three and do not realize that we are going to be spoiling aspects of this film, this is your last chance to go back and par watch parts one and two and the films if you care about them. Also, that means you're probably new to the show. So welcome. Welcome. Yes. And also that also means, hey, this is your final chance. Get off the train because it's a good one. Uh, so moving forward. So what happened with the Justice League film? 
uh, in the middle of production, uh, something tragic happened with Zack Snyder's daughter. Absolutely horrible. Which had him have to step down because they were, you know, the powers that be uh, did not want to move, you know, delay the film. Um, and so he chose to step down uh, from the film and they had they hired Josh Whedon to come in and do it because he did a fantastic job with the, the Avengers and they figured that he could wrap this up in a nice little bow and move forward. Uh, needless to say, what Josh has done with the Avengers works for Marvel. It works for the Avengers because those films have been stylized and done in that format. For DC, I don't think it worked really well. Um, I don't know if he was the right choice or if it was just a lot of tampering with the studio because it's like, hey, we have a different director now. Let's see what we can do. And then Alton has some some items. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. Having inundated myself into these films, Flash Freeze style, um, I, I just want to put some disclaimers out there for everybody who may not have seen both versions of these films and why you may want to consider watching both cuts, even before I get into the problems with both of them. First and foremost, and this leads into a point that Dan was just barely making, editing, directing, producing a movie is not the same thing as assembling Lego, okay? You don't just have this piece and this piece and this piece and you put them together and magically it just works on the other side. There are huge decisions that are being made all along the way in terms of lighting and sound design, even what types of equipment you're using. Everything leads to the ultimate feeling of a film being good or bad. And most importantly, there was a, a critical thing, and I'm going to go into the Disneyverse for just a second here, sorry. Um, when Walt Disney was putting together the animatronics for the Enchanted Tiki Room, he was talking to his Imagineers who are putting together these little teeny tiny birds. And he was saying, it's not, it's not good enough. He says, I want them to breathe. I want them to breathe in time with the music, with the lyrics, where it makes sense they need to be breathing in, where it makes sense they need to be breathing out. And his engineers looked at him and, and said, that's ridiculous. We're going to have hundreds of these things up in the air. People already don't know what they're going to be looking at. It's too much. It's too perfect. People simply won't notice it. And Disney said, people feel perfection, which I interpret to mean people feel intentionality. When you do something purposefully from the beginning to the end, and you have that end in mind, even if a casual person cannot tell you why something works or why something doesn't work, they will know in their heart, they will feel that intention coming through. And so part of my problem with the theatrical release lies upon the tonal dissonance between what Joss Whedon did, whether that's because it's his specific style or because the, uh, the studios directed him to do so or both. Part of it is kind of a problem that he fell into because if you have 75% of a film done with somebody else's vision and then you're coming in and expected to cobble it together, it's just not going to work. There's my, there's my premise. But if you watch both films, I do think that it's an excellent illustration of why 
you should really find a good team and just let them go. Because even if it doesn't turn out exactly the way that you want it, at the very least, it will be cohesive. Okay, Dan, yeah. I hand it back. No, you're fine. I love how you brought the Tiki Room in there because let's face it, millions of people go see the Tiki Room and you're just sitting in there watching a bunch of birds sing, but it feels real. I mean, it really does. It feels like you've enmeshed yourself into the world of Disney for a few moments to hear these songs, these birds sing. And it really, you do feel that in this movie where there is a little bit of a clash. There's a clash between what Zack Snyder saw and what Whedon saw. And again, the, the great thing about this, it's just the same story told by a different storyteller. You know, It's like... <gasps> I, know. I don't know that I agree with that, but finish your thought and we'll come back. I know, I know. Um, there's probably some tampering in there. I, I get it. But um, there's a lot of things with the theatrical release that really rubbed me raw. One of those being The Flash. I mean, here was a great opportunity to introduce a fantastic character and they make him a putz. They really do. And they miss out on this really critical part that we saw in Batman versus Superman, where mm -hmm. there's this weird dream sequence that Bruce has, and he sees Ezra, the Flash, Ezra, uh, that plays him, show up and say, Lois is the key, blah, blah, blah. And But that doesn't show back up. We don't see that in the Justice League movie. It's like, oh, we're just going to forget about that. And then he's just like, I, I've never fought anybody before. I don't know what to do. But we've seen him go up against a robber in a grocery store. So why would he not save people? That was really... I'm afraid of bugs, but only for this scene because it's convenient to crack yeah. a joke. Yeah, and then, and then we have Cyborg, which really didn't seem like he was oh. really in the movie. And there was... And again... You know, the original Justice League, Cyborg wasn't a, a main member. I get that. Uh, you know, we had Green Lantern, we had Martian Manhunter, we had The Flash, we had Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman. You know, the, the New 52 is who brought uh, Cyborg in as part of that, that main Justice League core, which I'm okay with. But this he was just this weird loner dude, and it just made no sense. And I just, those two characters out of the entire ensemble just seemed like they were thrown in for comic relief, but they were, it was done poorly. Krebs. Um, I feel like they used Cyborg and Flash as foils of each other. Um, and by they, I mean primarily Joss Whedon. I, I agree with what you guys have said so far. Uh, Zack Snyder has a very specific voice in his storytelling, and we see it played out in multiple films right and joss whedon very much the same thing joss whedon can be dark when he needs to be dark but he's also always a bit tongue-in-cheek he has a great sense of meta humor um he he has his own style and it works great for the vehicles he chooses yeah. in this case the vehicle chose him as it were um i i hypothesize that even though there are still differences tonally between these two directors i think if they had been able to get Christopher Nolan instead I think the story voices would have been closer still still divergent but closer mm -hmm. yeah I no. think that I think and Christopher Nolan I think he's proven over the years that he doesn't tell a story unless he can tell a story well and uh he 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 can do no wrong he's amazing but that aside um you know I think 
I can see I can see the justification for many of the decisions in the film. I also agree. Uh, I also want to point out, I should say, that the Zack Snyder version has an unfair advantage already. In fact, it has two. It has two unfair advantages. One, it could be as long as he wanted. This is very much the notion of like the extended version of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring is a superior version to the theatrical release. And it's because it can be as long as it wants to be. And you can tell as much as you want to tell. And it, it allows you to dive into those, those beautiful details. So, so I have actually a question on that front because we've talked about theatrical lengths before on the show. We did an episode, if I recall correctly, on it um, in which you know I specifically called out uh, Ender's Game as suffering from the same problem of mm-hmm. trying to cram something that needed breathing space into this little teeny tiny two hour runtime. But we've seen films like Titanic, for example. That film is not a two hour film. Even the theatrical no. cut was not a two hour no. film, right? And Lord of the Rings, another great example, even though the extended edition is definitely a much longer film, the theatrical cut already quote unquote ran long relative to what was normal for theater at the time. So, and there are many other points that I want to get to on the theatrical cut of Justice League, but that is a question that I wanted to pose specifically to you, Krebs, because you have kind of this this background knowledge. Why does this artificial barrier exist? And what do you kind of feel may have been the motivations for the studio to get it to that two hour runtime? Well, this kind of gets us to the second advantage of the Zack Snyder film, which is it had way less studio intervention by comparison. The problem that we have, this artificial barrier that you talk about, um, might you and I might see it as arbitrary, but here's the reality of that barrier. Every studio that produces a film is only concerned with box office sales, and they will force a creative to go one direction or another or 12 different directions along the way, Kathleen Kennedy. Sorry, I didn't mean to sneeze just now, but anyway, um, you know, 12 different directions because they're trying so hard to capture money in the pocket. And so the studio is only focused, the studio's business, I'm not saying this is like an evil or bad thing. This is how businesses function. They must be profitable. And when you get into the entertainment industry, it is extremely difficult to be consistently profitable. And so going back to your question about this artificial barrier, I would point out that the barrier here is that is, is that of trust and faith, which sounds a little weird, but let me explain. You, you have... Um, you have uh, the Lord of the Rings films. The material, the source material demands a certain reverence and a certain level of focus. And um, even when, um, oh my gosh, I, I'm trying so hard to remember the director's name right now. Uh, um, Peter, Jackson. Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson, thank you. My brain kept going through different Peter names and I couldn't hit that one. Uh, Peter Jackson, you know, even he had to capitulate and produce a film that was extremely lengthy. I remember reading articles about how long Lord of the Rings was and how long people were, uh, how long the story was. And yet, when you look at the Peter Jackson cut, it does not contain every detail of the book or every story in the book. Uh, Mm. People often cite Tom Bombadil, for example. There are things that he cut out, even in the extended edition, which is significantly longer, still does not contain everything, right? So Peter Jackson had to make certain 
compromises to keep the studio's faith. In return, he showed them dailies of what he was creating and their trust and their faith increased. And with that trust and faith, you are able to get away with more. And that explains why certain movies are allowed to be super long. Also, let's look at film history for just a brief second where you've got Cecil B. DeMille, who's uh, who's making you know what was referred to as epics, right? He's making mm-hmm. film epics, movies that are three and four hours long back in the 50s and 60s. Um, but part of that also was the nature of media absorption at the time or, or, or media uh, uh, sort of... Um, uh, partaking, right? Or participation by the audience. You, you have a group of people, not everybody has a television in their house at that point in time. Um, people want to see spectacles and they're willing to sit still and watch. They don't have little screens in front of them all the time like we do today. They're not, they're not the slaves of instant gratification. And so, but the audience has has changed. I almost said evolved, but that almost suggests that somehow we're better now than we were then. And I got to argue that in some cases we're not better. And in some cases, the studios are convinced that we're not better when we are. I think so. So all that together, let me let me bring this all kind of full circle. Um, the director and the producer have to have the faith and the trust of the studio. And the studio also has to have the faith and trust in the audience, um, or rather for the audience, right? Uh, They have to believe that the audience is going to be willing to drop money in the pocket for this movie. And the truth with the DC universe and with the way that Warner Brothers sees things, they did not have that trust or that faith in everything that was going on. And I absolutely believe that they got way too involved in most of the DC films. No, I think you're right. So really it does come down to you know, money. It always has. Uh, you know, why why go for a four hour film when a two hour film can get you double the you know the box office it gets. You know, when it's cut down to two hours. Because um, really, and and that's why we're seeing the type of films we we are now. I mean, we're not really seeing any type of new films that are groundbreaking or out of the ordinary or out of the box because. They're just going with what's safe. What's a safe bet? Um, which is why superhero movies are being made right now because it's a safe bet. You know, they're really popular. But when was the last time we got a groundbreaking movie that was like, "Wow, this is amazing"? I mean, Inception. We we got that, but it's been a while since we've yeah, had a lot of different movies that have been coming out. And those movies that are groundbreaking and out of the ordinary are kind of just we don't see them as often. They're not really well spoken. Uh, you know, there's uh, the Shadow in the Clouds is one that just recently came out. It's set in World War II, but it's about gremlins and that attacking these planes and stuff like that. And I'm like, I haven't even watched the film yet, but I just watched the trailer and this one just snuck in. I'm like, man, this looks amazing. I got to see this. I mean, it's been out on digital since January. I had no clue this film existed. But going back to my point, it's really, they brought someone in. And they're like, okay, we need to make this work. This is what we have. Put the pieces together, do the best you can. And we understand your style of storytelling is not going to be the same. We're gonna, tr- we're gonna make this work the best we can. Try to make it close to the look. And as it was coming together, they were probably like, hmm, maybe that's too, this, too much this way. Maybe this is too dark. Maybe let's put it, you know, maybe just, said hey let's put some humor in that that's what i do you know when we have a really tense moment i put some humor in there to kind of release that valve 
you know, which we see that at the very end of the fight scene where Bruce is rolling on the ground like, oh, I must have broke something. Like, Batman, he, you could beat the crap out of him and he still keeps going. He doesn't complain. Um, it doesn't, it didn't work. It, it works for the Avengers. It di- doesn't work for Justice League. And, and again, it may have if Joss had been the master building up the other movies up to this one, it could have worked. But the groundwork was already set, the dark tones, there was no humor in there. And so when there suddenly was, it just felt off kilter to me. Yeah. I mean, to Joss Whedon's credit though, I do want to identify something that he did very well, Mm -hmm. Uh, even though contextually it did not work. He took the material that he was given and he identified the bare minimum number of plot points that had to be hit in order for it to make cohesive sense. The film itself, as as I have expressed to multiple people since I watched it, is not terrible. Correct. It's also not good. It's just kind of this middle of the road where it feels like the heroes and us as a consequence are being pulled along instead of being pushed through the story narrative. Um, And when I look at all of the major plot points, especially in comparison to what I ended up seeing from the Snyder Cut, I was like, yeah, okay, all of the things that had to happen in quotes were there, but the execution, the editing, the tonal dissonance, the things that had to be added in in order to bridge them together under a new directorial vision kind of led to this unbridled meh where I didn't feel really high highs and really low lows, where I didn't see character arcs and where we cut critical pieces of character development in exchange for appealing to that audience need to be engaged and entertained that the studio and maybe even Joss didn't feel could be sustained in a dark gritty version of the film. Um, One of the critical things that you already called out is the way that they kind of cut pieces of the flash out and turned them into this, you know, oh, I got to figure out how to be a real hero now, Pop, you know, uh, but they also did my boy Cyborg real dirty. I mean, and this is where uh, Cyborg is the only character in the DC universe that I've ever actually really cared about. I've liked Batman, I've liked Superman, I've liked Wonder Woman, but Cyborg is the only character that I've really been like, yes, I get you, I understand you, I like you. And in the Joss Whedon cut, he just doesn't exist as a character. He exists as a set piece. He exists as a MacGuffin and as a plot device, but not really as a character. He's furniture. He's set dressing that gets you to the next point and provides just a little bit of backup at the right time because, man, now we need a, a, you know, a crescent wrench to get in there and finish this job. Um, and that, that caused me a lot of problems. On the second half, though, you see Joss added in this B plot of this Russian family sitting at the edge of what is definitely not Chernobyl, we promise, guys. And you can see, even though I don't think that it makes sense contextually and tonally to the film, you can also see that Whedon, as an intelligent director, recognized that there needed to be some glue. There needed to be a human element and we didn't have time to be able to spend on all five characters of the main crew in depth. 
And so we needed something that was just faceless enough and just human enough that we as an audience could connect. And so I don't, to the point that I think we've all been trying to make, I don't think that Joss Whedon is a garbage director in terms of execution, but the task that he had to overcome did not make sense for what his skill set was and what the audience was expecting out of it. No, he definitely was handed a difficult situation. Yes, that in in all fairness and in all compassion, that whole scenario, especially for Zack Snyder, but also for Joss Whedon, was just a terrible scenario. That was that that was a miracle slash no win situation, right? Like yeah. you you either needed to have a miracle, it needed to go absolutely flawlessly, or you were going to have these troubles, you know. And and I'm glad that you brought this up, Alton, because. Um, I remember sitting and watching the theatrical version for the first time recently in preparation for this episode. And I had a couple of thoughts that surprised me. Thought number one, mustache gate was not as bad or as pervasive as I thought it would be. It was, it was bad when I saw it, but I was actually surprised at the number of times it either wasn't noticeable or it, it was a respectable replacement job. There were just a couple of places where it really stood out as horrifying. And I would say that that was the introductory scene where Superman is being caught on someone's mobile phone. Um, a mustache replacement did not work well there. And there was also a close-up where he was talking to Lois in the cornfield after his resurrection and he got a Joker smile and it was a little terrifying. Um, but other than those two moments, there weren't, any other, and I watched it on a larger screen. It wasn't just on my phone. I watched it on a full screen television, right? So um, I was actually surprised at how many times it actually worked or rather I couldn't tell the natural scenes from the reshot scenes. So I, you know, I don't want to spend the whole time on the theatrical cut here, though it is important that we've talked about what we have up until this point contextually. If you haven't seen the theatrical cut, this is your drop in really quick into that world. Um, but uh, I do think that it is important that we talk about from a story standpoint, what are some of the critical differences? What are some of the critical things that happened in the Joss Whedon cut that did not happen in the Snyder cut? And then let's talk about what ended up replacing them. Um, you guys okay with moving on? Krebs, you feel good about that? Uh, yeah, well, I was kind of mid-thought there and I wanted to I wanted to also ask you guys this question. I think these are two questions we need to answer. Um, the, the other thought that I had about the theatrical cut uh, was how bad I thought it wasn't, right? Like it wasn't, I'll tell you right now, cards on the table, the Zack Snyder version in my personal opinion is a better told story. Agreed. It's a better story. It has much more complete character development and value in the journey. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised at how much I still liked the theatrical version warts and all. Yeah. Um, wasn't perfect, wasn't great. I agree with that. But I don't think it was quite as bad as everybody made it out to be. It's, it's uh, not a horrible movie. It's not. I was, and I was surprised. Maybe, maybe it's because I went in with a negative expectation. Maybe it's because I went in with like, oh my crap, I'm going to hate this. And then when I didn't hate it, I loved that I didn't hate it. I don't know. No, but let's it, go it's, ahead. It's a good film. It's a good film. It's not, you know, when compared to the Snyder Cut, definitely it's the weaker of the two. 
but mm-hmm. it's not a bad film. It still hits some good points. It still tells a decent story, um, but it does have some issues. Uh, as far as the big comparisons, what I think uh, between the two films, you know, in the, the theatrical release, we have this weird scene where Clark is talking to Pa Kent on a mountaintop while he's stacking rocks. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. really weird. In the Zack Snyder cut, we see him walking through the ship picking his suit, and we hear both fathers. We hear this, this, yeah. this the voices of both fathers to rise up, be the the man that you should be, the person that is the savior of this world. I really felt that was more conceptually designed better. Here yeah. was the two fathers this person had, and they're both telling him the same message in a different voice in a different way, which I thought was fabulous. The other thing that I really appreciated was, um, actually, we didn't see Superman till almost the middle of the, the Snyderverse movie. You know, it wasn't this big push to get Superman back. It was this building up of the team and who we are and Cyborg being the one to find them first, not them finding Cyborg. And mm-hmm. the development of Cyborg's character. And uh, I mean, we got to really see a development of all the characters up to the point where they come together, where in the first one, it was just kind of this mashed together because Bruce is trying to find them to save the world because this war is coming. There wasn't a lot of character development. I Those are the real two big things I think are the greatest things in my mind. Um, the Atlanteans, yeah, I maybe could have dealt without that, but that's okay. Um, it is still added to the story. Is the weird English accent stuff that threw me off with them. But oh, it was one nice. quick point on that: Willem Dafoe makes perfect sense as an Atlantean. Yes, yes, yes he does. Um, and and not only that, where suddenly he has the trident because we haven't seen the trident. He doesn't have it. Now suddenly, you know, then suddenly an Aquaman, he has it. Why does he have it? Well, he because he was given it and you know, the Justice League. A lot of things, a lot more things make sense. Um, I, I really enjoyed the film. I loved the buildup of the villain, Steppenwolf. I feel like in Zack Snyder's version, it was a lot more solid. We got to see more dark side. Uh, we got to understand the mother boxes better. And I, I just, and, and again, yes, you're right. He had more time to go, oh, hey, that didn't work for, for Josh. That didn't work either. I'm going to fix these things. Yeah. Um, which obviously time is always better. But the, the biggest thing for me is that scene, you know, where he's walking and hearing both fathers and that he wasn't rushed into the story. I like how it took a while. I like how, you know, there was Cyborg and Flash kind of joking around that they were grave robbers now. Um, that mm-hmm. that kind of humor worked for me. Um, but all in all, it's, there's just those key s- sequences where we see character development uh, of those main heroes coming to the point, you know, we saw the storming, the forming, and then the norming in, in, in the procession with these guys, where yes. I don't think we really got in the theatrical release. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll go. So I, I, I very much agree with you on all of those points, actually. 
all of those points. Um, which I know we're a show of people who generally get along and sometimes audience you may <laughs> feel or you know constant listener you may feel that like we're just chummy and we come in here knowing what our points are going to be and we all line up and it's not magic but sometimes it actually is magic and sometimes we disagree vehemently but we can still be friends while we disagree and I appreciate that as well um, but I, I do very 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 much agree with all of those points, especially the one about not rushing to Superman. Um, one of the plot contrivances in the theatrical cut is this fabricated conflict of should we, shouldn't we, are we going to make zombie Superman and blah, 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 right? Um, whereas, and it's, and it's also set up on a really bad false pretense for us as the audience because we see Superman at the start of the film, which means that we're already coming in with the expectation that he's going to be pooped out partway through. Right? <laughs> um, the, 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 the story trope of a fate worse than death only works if your stakes make sense. Yeah. And if you are starting out a story with the contrivance that Superman is going to come out all right, but now we're going to introduce this fake conflict that he might be evil. That's a problem, right? Whereas in the Zack Snyder cut, I very, very, very much appreciated that it was one of those things of like, we don't have time. This is just what we've got to do. We don't have time. This is just what we've got to do. Let's just go. Is there even a chance? Yes, there's a chance. Okay. It's what we've got to do. And then there's this little tiny subtle breadcrumb. And it's not like slapping us in the face with a fish. It's just Alfred going you know, be careful about this. <laughs> when we're dealing with technologies we don't understand and someone's already been dead, maybe on the other side of that, there might be some unexpected consequences here. Um, but it is still very, very natural. And all of these heroes who are gung-ho power figures in their various areas of expertise are just like, no, we just got to do it. We just got to do it. And then we start to get closer. And again, there's just like these little teeny tiny breadcrumbs seated in of like, you know, it's a little weird that we're bringing this guy back from the dead using technology that we don't understand that already produced a supervillain that we had to fight, maybe. That, that killed but, Superman? But you know what? No, no, no. Like, we just got to do it. We just got to do it. Okay, we get in. And then it's like, wait, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> but at that point, it's too late, right? And then we see Superman come out. And yeah, he's just woken up from the dead. First off, Batman is not in the room. Mm -hmm. which is exactly what you need as a story point. Yeah. And it's also not because Batman has some secret backup in his back pocket, like, woohoo, let's see what happens here. It's naturally happening what's in the story. The troops been separated as a necessary plot development so that when Superman comes back, doesn't recognize the majority of these people, is very you know, disconcerted and off-put and some degree of his system is still forming because he's just been made out of alien goo. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. And then Batman shows up and he's already a little off-center and some little part of his brain snaps. Yes, this makes perfect sense. This is exactly where we need to be. I thought that was so, so, so much better. Um, but the biggest, biggest, biggest change is Cyborg. Yes. Um, 
cyborg actually being relevant to the story actually experiencing a real character arc growth moments ascending to the ranks of the justice league instead of just being shoehorned in as the guy who happened to stumble across the box lots of setup and payoff around where he is moving plots uh, or where he's moving plot devices and where he's interacting with the world at large we see this this real conflict of his father trying to bring him back and then realizing that he can one of the other pieces of that that was really important is in the theatrical cut it was not clear that his father is working in a lab at the alien spaceship okay which is a weird thing to not make abundantly clear and it's a critical piece of the infrastructure in the cider cut that's like yeah yeah this is how we've got to get there this is how we have the understanding of what it's capable of doing this is why the mother box makes sense this is why we know that it can work and so it just creates this whole thing but then we also get to see cyborg be what i believe is actually a character foil of superman which is raised in a home where his mother was the only person who supported him his father not being there is the central thing in his mind that actively caused his mother to die and him to experience an actual fate worse than death executed well right this concept of the loss of humanity um, and not believing that he can reachieve it uh, it isn't just him randomly blundering into his abilities but actually trying to explore them and expand them and see what he's capable of doing and making the conscious choice to be different, not because he has a father figure whispering in his ear, but because he as a person believes that there are higher things to attain to. Um, Cyborg is specifically told and, and, sh and were shown through the film that the world's electronic systems are wide open to him. If he wanted to destroy society, he could. That elevates him to the same level as Superman for the purposes of plot. Even though we're not saying Cyborg versus Superman in a fight, Cyborg's going to win. What we are saying is that in terms of their impact on the universe and on the story, they're elevated to the same level. And so they make natural sense as teammates, but also as character foils. And then we see the way that his father chooses to go through his own arc of redemption and ultimately drives Cyborg to get it across the finish line. And I think that is gorgeous. I, I absolutely love well-written characters that have real feelings and real things driving them. Thoughts, Krebs? Uh, I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, to be honest with you, if I had gotten the baton before you, I was gonna leave the Cyborg discussion for you because you're the right person to talk about that. Um, We've hit on character development multiple times. The one thing I'll say on that wise is that the Flash, his character in this movie, still abides by um, the notion that he's a kid thrown into a superverse and he's finding his way. But like uh, Daniel pointed out earlier, he's not a bumbling child who's irrationally afraid of everything. In fact, his character is more consistent in the Zack Snyder version because the Flash is this um, character of wild abandon. It's the nature of him being able to travel at the speed of light and break timelines. He, he's the only person who can challenge the consequence. And so having him push himself beyond limits 
uh, or, or to imagine that he has a certain limit and that he can move past that limit is perfect and consistent in his character. Other things that I really enjoyed about the Zack Snyder version included that when they fought Superman the first time, he did not say a word until he was in the cornfield with Lois, which gives gravitas to her comment, you spoke. Uh, did I not before? Um it that was so important plus i think it also showed how he was kind of coming out of the malaise of his resurrection right um the the uh, i i did not well we'll get to that in a second um the the moment where all of the justice league minus superman is in the hangar with bruce wayne and they're talking about the meaning of the mother boxes they're talking about what that indicated, why they're active now, what does it mean for Superman? Could we possibly use it? Like, like that moment was far more mature and far more intellectual, which I think fits the group far better than what we saw in the Joss Whedon version, where they're basically going through a Firefly-esque banter session, trying to outwit each other instead of form a cohesive plan. So I love, I love the, in, the integrity and the intelligence of that scene, um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to steal too much. I know, especially Dan has some other thoughts, but really quick on that point, a quick expansion on that. I think that that's one of the thematic differences, meaning theme from a story standpoint, is that in the theatrical cut, the conflict is centered around getting the team together, whereas in the yes. Snyder cut, it is centered around characters becoming compatible through self-growth yeah. it's not that yes. we can't get the justice team into one place and get them to work together it's can we overcome our individual weaknesses can't you know um there was a critical line and now it's left my brain early on in the snyder cut that that sets up that theme perfectly in which it's saying that you know a chain is only as as strong as its weakest link that's not the line that was used but it's the con the conceptual idea that it's like, yeah, you can get all these people in one place and they may be able to technically work together, but if they can't overcome those weaknesses to rise to their potential, it's it'll not be their undoing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I was also having a thought earlier that in the theatrical version, it, it it's a shorter film, but it also feels like two stories. It feels like the formation of the Justice League, the stopping of Steppenwolf, right? Yeah. But the way notice that the Snyder cut has exactly the same general plot points, but they're reorganized so that they form a cohesive tapestry as opposed to here are two almost disparate stories and we're kind of mashing them together to form this really disgusting grilled cheese sandwich, right? Um, it, it's not the same thing. There, there's a, there's just a difference in the maturity level of the storytelling overall. Um, yeah. So. Uh, oh, okay. So uh, the one thing that I do want to say uh, to kind of segue into the next little bit, so we can wrap this up, is, you know, the Snyder Cut, as great as it is, is still not a perfect film either. Correct. It has, it has greatness in it. It has excellent elements. I loved seeing Superman as a villain in the nightmare scape, right? Um, but 
I, there were also things that did not go well. There were some warts left over in the Snyder cut for, for me, one of those warts was um, the disconnect with the Aquaman film. The, 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 you brought this up earlier, the Atlanteans and the Aquaman that we saw in justice league, whether it's theatrical or whether it's the Zack Snyder cut is just honestly too far removed from what we saw in Aquaman's dedicated film. Yeah. I there was this disjointedness. And the thing is, I don't think that's Zack Snyder or Justice League's fault. I think that has to do with the fact that they directed the film very differently when it came out after Justice League. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that said, I, that's one of the that's one of the warts that's on the Zack Snyder cut for me. I realized that they put it in a four by three aspect ratio to more appropriately fit the IMAX aspect ratio. I gotta be honest, I didn't love it. And especially because ultimately. And it was known well enough in advance. Well, no, that's that's arguable. Um, it did come to home and to theaters at the same time. And it was originally intended for theaters at some point, right? Uh, but that said, I think going back to the four by three aspect ratio, for those of you who don't know, that was what our televisions were from the 1950s all the way through the late 90s and early thousands. It's only in the last 20 years that we've had television in, in a rectangular shape. Uh, and going back to the four by three aspect ratio made me feel like I was losing opportunity for like visual spectacle. So I wasn't a big fan of that. What about you guys? What do you find to be warts in the Zack Snyder cut? Hmm. Warts in the cut. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely, I mean, the biggest thing again is still going to be Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor. Um, mm. I would have liked to have seen a, as much as I don't like him as Lex Luthor. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of him uh, somehow. <laughs> him manipulating him. It was really nice to see Jared Leto at the end as the Joker, uh, very much looking like a Heath Ledger type Joker. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit more crazier. He didn't look like he did in uh, Suicide Squad, thankfully. Yeah. Um, so I was, a, I, I could accept this Joker a little bit more than the Joker I saw in that one. Um, mm-hmm. The one wart that I would definitely take is the the swearing. I mean, the the f bombs that were dropped. Uh, yeah. I just didn't enjoy that in this film. It it seemed wrong to me, uh, and and. Maybe he was going for that grittiness. I don't know, but it just didn't fit the characters, in my opinion. So that one really bugged me, but I kind of let it go. Um, the other thing that I really wished is I could have seen maybe a fight with Darkseid. You know, we saw enough of him, but the we didn't get it. The only fight we got to see with Darkseid is in the past. Um, I would have really liked to see a lantern show up we didn't see a green lantern we saw one in the past so that we know they exist i mean green lantern's one of my favorite characters why didn't we see a hal jordan or someone show up uh, we saw martian manhunter that was awesome uh i appreciated that but we didn't see a green lantern and that would have been a great segue to to kind of introduce them uh those are kind of my words uh I mean, to be fair, we couldn't get Ryan Reynolds back in the suit if we tried. No, I don't want Ryan Reynolds back. Unless he had a Deadpool mask. <laughs> I want to see a, an actual Hal Jordan. I think the casting of Ryan Reynolds as Hal Jordan was a mistake. 
Uh, there were uh, a lot of things about that film. That let was... alone that entire film was done improperly. I don't think they should have introduced Parallax as a villain. They should have gone with maybe Sinestro or some other villain to start it up. Parallax was just the wrong way to go. Um, let alone the weird hokey glow-in-the-dark spacesuits. Um, yeah. And, and the lanterns were just constructed wrong. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another episode, another time. Yeah, and then mm. Boba Fett is Abin Sor really? Uh, no, just yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, you know, I did enjoy it. I don't think I saw as many warts as probably you two did because I enjoyed it more because it was expanding and telling the story I had hoped to have seen in Justice League. Yeah. But yes, the Atlanteans that the armor they were wearing didn't match with what they were wearing in the uh, Aquaman film. They were all had a British accent, but they don't in the Aquaman film. Mara's hair was not as bright neon red as it, as it is in Aquaman. It was more of a dull red color. Well, everything in the movie was muted and dulled down because he went for a darker contrast here. Mm-hmm view but even so even in the theatrical cut mara's hair was not like freaking crimson yeah Mm -hmm. um and she wasn't as so those are some those are some of the warts that are yeah 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 i i I think i agree with most of those um now i i have significantly less investment in the dc universe right so i'm definitely not authorized to speak on a lot of them um, but I did feel like, uh, both the Atlanteans, most of the Atlantean scenes, as well as many of the Amazonian scenes, contextually not important, could have been reworked in other ways. I did appreciate the way that the Amazonian scenes were reworked, particularly in relationship with Steppenwolf. Um, it felt significantly more impactful um but then we just kind of stayed there um and that was a little weird to me um and funnily enough one of the things that i think could have fixed this whole thing is something that we talked about a month ago just before the Zack snyder came out in which we talked about the wandavision treatment and you can actually see in the way that the film is edited uh that Snyder was kind of going for that. Um, if you aren't interested in sitting down and watching a four-hour film all in one go, it's conveniently divided into six parts for you of approximately 40 minutes each. <laughs> and, and so it's just one of those things where I'm like, there could have been more ways to put meat on the bone with mm-hmm. a slightly different treatment. There could have been ways to give it more depth again, with a slightly different treatment or with more coordination and collaboration with other films, which again, I haven't seen those other films, uh, um, Aquaman in particular, so I don't know about that piece. Um, But they felt like they were put as the first two sections of the film, mostly because they couldn't quite get the engine revving. And if you happened to put it in the middle of the film, it would have brought everything to a complete halt. Um, The other one that did bother me about The Flash, funnily enough, was his introductory scene um, in which he's applying for a job. 
Yeah, and and sees this cute girl walking out, and then goes and saves Iris. her life, and lays her down oh so gently, and then she never appears again for the rest of the film, and that felt like a missed opportunity, but also kind of unneeded, even though it illustrated what Flash was capable of doing and some of his character traits. Even. I felt the, the I romance felt like wasn't there. Genius. I felt like that scene was genius because it shows that he is capable of saving people mm. at the most inopportune times. And then not only that, he, you know, it, obviously it's Iris um, because they're kind of matching it up with Iris from the Flash TV series, but he takes I that opportunity. That I'm sorry. Uh, that it's his love interest. So I'm sure she's going to tie in with the flash film that they're going to do, but not only does he save her, but then he takes an opportunity to grab a hot dog and stuffs it into his pocket. So he can go in and still score the job because now he's divided this hot dog up between these dogs. And, mm. and they're, they're See, all but that's, but that's kind of my point though, right? Is not contextually knowing who Iris is. She yeah. served no purpose in this film. And even if, I mean, if you could insert literally any woman there, true. Then what do, what purpose does it actually serve? Especially when it never comes up again that he has any type of romantic interest in the world, that he has any type of driver motivation outside of trying to get his father out of prison, that he has no stated character objectives other than to try to harness his powers. And he has some unspoken rules that he has to keep safe because they kind of alter the fabric of reality. Like, but that has nothing to do with her. Yeah. Even if it was random pedestrian crossing the street and he went out and saved random pedestrian, it would have accomplished the same thing in fewer and, words. And, and it could be just a random person and that he just happened to, to like. But w what I liked, though, is it sets up that he is capable of saving people. It's not the, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We're actually seeing him save people. And I think that's where it improved his character. Yeah, the value of that scene for me was illustrating that the Flash can be a hero in his own style, that and, and and that he is, you know, you've got Cyborg who is literally a genius, Batman or Bruce Wayne who's literally a genius and really rich and really rich, uh, and they constantly plot and they have rules and they have structure. Even Superman, when he shows up, he has the laws of Kal-El that he sort of follows, right? But the Flash is always off the cuff. He went there for a, a, a dog walking job that he was ill prepared for. And in the moment, he was able to seize the opportunity to save a life. You're right. It could have been anybody, but we also know that that was a little bit of fan service making it Iris. Yep. Uh, he, he saved a life turned that tragedy into his advantage, moved back into where he could like get the job. He saved the girl and he got the job. Uh, and and it, was, it was Flash doing what Flash does. He just solves the problem in the moment. He has no real forethought. And yeah. I kind of mm. love that about that scene. Yeah. Okay. It's not till convinced. It's not till later that we see a more mature Barry Allen. Uh, um, I, I agree with you. The Iris thing was fan service, and out of context, you wouldn't have cared. Yeah. There is one final wart that I do want to point out before oh, we please. wrap up. Please. And funnily enough, this is a wart that this film pointed out for a completely different franchise. Ooh. Or I should say, 
brought back up for a completely different franchise. And I'm kind of dropping this in as a tease and a spoiler to a panel that we are trying to do at Fanex uh, <gasps> later this year. But this movie actually illustrated a tool uh, that Star Wars failed at miserably and could very easily use in similar ways in which even though Snyder definitely does not think that the theatrical cut that released was great and he told an alternate timeline story of what happened in that universe he did so in such a way that was not destructive to the theatrical cut if you love the theatrical cut this film actually allows that cut to exist as a real timeline that happened and thereby does service to the people who did enjoy it as well as a professional courtesy to the studio who produced the film and the director who did it a completely different way even if Snyder himself completely disagrees with it and opened up some other avenues towards better pastures um, and I'm, I'm very hopeful for what some of this could mean for the future of some of our other favorite franchises in a galaxy far, far away. I, you know, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't even think about that. And that, that is a value in, this, in the Snyder Cut that I think is beautiful. And thanks for pointing that out. I hadn't even considered that, but you make a valid point. But well, come I, see us in September for more. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> like that. I like that it's an alternate timeline. Uh, so it's not the same story told by a different storyteller. It's just there was a choice made, and it schismed to a different. So it's a different. It's a multiverse. It, it the Whedon and the Snyderverse films both exist on a different alternate Earth. Whether it's mm-hmm. Earth twenty nine or Earth seventy seven, they they both exist without you know thumbing a nose at the other one. Uh, I do appreciate that and do like that. And uh, so. Before we go, I do have a critical question for our fans out there to answer on the Discord. The critical question that we'd like to hear from you is, what are the lessons that you learned from the two cuts of the Justice League? What are things that you've identified that could be a better tool for filmmakers and storytellers in the future, or things that you have discovered about the filmmaking and story delivery process because of having been able to see two different versions of what is ostensibly the same story. Check us out in the Discord. Let us know how it's going. All right, folks. We have talked your era. We have told you about uh, you know, four different films now. Uh, technically five, but we're ignoring the theatrical release of Batman versus Superman. So there I is the Man of Steel. There's Batman versus Superman Ultimate edition there is the theatrical release of justice league and now the zack snyderverse release of the justice league uh check those out especially if you're a dc fan you know we understand no film is perfect every film is going to have warts and bumps and bruises and things you may not like but the point is to enjoy them as they are uh whether it's good or bad it's still a film and it is a story that has been designed to watch it's entertainment uh it will be exciting to see how this does affect the landscape of things it's going to be interesting we do from time to time get director's cuts and things like that they come out and they do kind of alternate things but i really think this one's going to impact quite a bit because this really put a left hook uh in how the dc universe was flowing and 
uh, I would imagine that maybe we could see a Snyderverse alternate reality of different things. So uh, with that said, folks, we are out of here and we'll catch you next time. Dungeon Crawlers, regardless of which version of the film you like more or whether or not Man of Steel is still your favorite. It is. Tell your story, whatever may come. And I will continue to remind you every week to be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always.